ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Is human genetic engineering bioethically acceptable? Hello and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, and today I'm speaking with Wesley J. Smith, who is chair and senior fellow at Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. He's an attorney by training, but left the full-time practice of law in the 1980s to pursue a career in writing and public policy, and has since published thousands of articles and columns and opinion pieces on issues related to the moral importance of human life. Wesley addresses the entire spectrum of bioethical issues, particularly relating to conscience, patient protection, eugenics, suicide, transhumanism, medical ethics, and law and policy. And his writings have appeared in virtually every major news outlet you can imagine. So, Wesley, it's so wonderful to have you on ID the Future with us today. Thank you, Casey. Good to be with you. Yeah, I don't remember ever interviewing you before for this. And our occasion today is we want to talk about a contribution you made to a book that's being released in October of 2021 titled The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life and the Cosmos. It's available on Amazon, and I'm a co-editor along with Bill Dembski and Joseph Holden. We certainly hope you'll check the book out. It has contributions from leading ID thinkers, including folks like Stephen Meyer, Michael Behe, Gunter Beckley, Paul Nelson, Jonathan Wells, Brian Miller, Walter Bradley, Robert Marks, Michael Egnor, Guillermo Gonzalez, Jay Richards, and many other people I'm forgetting, including you, Wesley J. Smith, who was a very important thinker in the area of bioethics. So thanks for coming to talk to us about this. Uh, You're welcome. It's great to be part of that rogues gallery. (laughs) Yeah, maybe some folks don't want to be included in that list, but (laughs) we're glad to count you among us. So your chapter in the book is titled, What About Human Exceptionalism and Genetic Engineering? And you start your chapter by saying that we may have already entered Huxley's brave new world, because in 2018, there were two babies born in China that were genetically engineered. What exactly happened with those babies and how was this genetic engineering accomplished? Right. Uh, This happened in China, as as you mentioned. Uh, Scientists took two IVF-created embryos and he engaged in what is known as genetic editing through uh, what is known as CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, which is one of the most powerful technologies ever invented by human beings. I think certainly since the splitting of the atom, because every life form in every cell is now capable of being very efficiently and easily genetically modified. What this particular scientist did was he kicked out a gene that is associated with HIV infection. And he did that, he claimed, because the father of these embryos had HIV. But you don't need to do that to prevent an embryo created through IVF from contracting HIV. So the embryos were modified. They were implanted in the mother's uterus. She brought them to birth. And these were the first two babies that were actually born with a genetic modification over what would have otherwise existed. And then it later came out that these children may actually be more susceptible to catching the flu because of this change. What people don't seem to understand is that when it comes to genes and human genome there are very, very few genes that just do one thing. And when you when you want to modify something in one area, you don't know what may happen in another area. So this was a form of eugenics. It was not for the benefit of the children. And actually, it created a, a great brouhaha 
And that scientist is now in jail. But that's less than it seems because I have submitted and I have written that the reason the biotech industry and the bioethicists were upset wasn't because of what was done. This has actually been advocated to be done, not this particular gene, but the, the general approach. But when it was done, that is, the population hadn't yet been softened with the propaganda that this is going to cure Uncle Charlie's Parkinson's and this kind of thing. And there's also a distinction between what was done here, because this was known as germline genetic engineering, meaning because it was done in an embryo, or if the same thing was done to a sperm cell or to uh, ovum, those changes will pass down for these two children, if they have children, down the generations. So this would be a permanent change. There's also something called somatic cell germline editing, which probably doesn't do that and has the potential to cure genetic disease. So we have to make a distinction here between germline that actually will go down the generations and somatic, which if something goes wrong, will only go wrong with the person who was uh, treated. Well, I'm just going to ditch the script that I wrote here, Wesley, because you're <laughs> flying through all the questions that I'd written down, but you're saying really great stuff. And I think you addressed the second question I wanted to ask, which is, why do you think it will be so difficult to genetically engineer humans? It's almost like a tapestry where you pull one thread and you have no idea how many other threads are going to unravel when you pull that one thread. I mean, tweaking a single gene is not necessarily predictable. So I guess a question would be, this scientist who did these experiments in China, did he really have an understanding of what that gene was going to do? Did he know that it was going to help reduce susceptibility to HIV and that it wouldn't have other effects? Or well, he hoped it would he hoped it would reduce susceptibility to HIV, but it was actually an act of hubris. That was the pretext. He just wanted to be the first one to do it. You know, the fact that the Chinese authorities threw him in jail is also less than meets the eye because this is the tyranny. Don't tell me that the powers that be did not know what he was working on. This is very important work. And the Chinese don't just let their scientists do what they want. They were embarrassed. And so he became the scapegoat. In fact, I, I published a piece, if people want to look it up, in which I interviewed this particular scientist PR person who was an American. And he told me that, you know, Xi, the head of China, might not have known about it, but there were people in the bureaucracy who were well aware of what was going on. So if people are interested in that question, do an internet search for me and this particular event and it'll come up. That's really interesting because I was shocked to hear you say that China threw this scientist in jail, but you just provided some context that allows that to make a lot more sense. They were doing this in response probably to international exactly. pressure and wanting to look like they were policing, you know, the bioethics of their scientists when really they were probably behind this all along. And if he'd gotten the Nobel prizes, I think he thought he would, uh, he'd be the head of the big lab now. So are you actually suggesting that China would uh, do something bioethically questionable that could damage the human race? I mean, well, I let's really... see, you know, China uh, live harvests the organs of Fulan Gong for their black market, and they're engaging in genocide against the Uyghur uh, minority population, and they allow slave labor. So, gee, I don't know whether they would do that or not. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So le let's drill down a little bit on this difference between somatic gene editing and germline gene editing. What is the, the difference of that, I guess, uh, you know, biologically speaking? And does that make one more bioethically controversial than the other? Yeah, I think it does. The, the somatic type would be like if the, let's say they wanted uh, doctors wanted to treat me for some kind of a cancer. And there's some thought that maybe 
these kinds of genetic modifications might actually help people fight cancer. This is all very experimental. You're dealing with a completed organism that is no longer in the embryonic stem cell stage, pluripotent, where all the cells can become any cell in the body. So the thinking is that if, if I were genetically modified, and then if I had a child, that those modifications would not appear in the sperm that I contributed to the creation of that child, and therefore it would not flow down the generations. So whatever benefit or whatever detriment those editing uh, uh, efforts uh, created would stop with me. When you're genetically modifying an em early embryo or gametes, as they're called, sperm or egg, those changes are going to permeate the entire organism. And eventually, when ova and sperm are created by that organism, they will contain potentially that change. And therefore, this offspring could very well have these changes. So you're really dealing with something that in terms of germline editing, that I don't think we have any business doing at any time, because the whole way our genes interact, the creation of RNA and so forth is so complex. And we don't know what does what or how it does it, that it would just be foolhardy. And, and I always have a certain precautionary principle. I'm not a complete believer in you don't do anything because something bad can happen. But we are the species that created the unsinkable ship Titanic. And I think we have to have a little humility, especially when you're not just talking about somebody who like, let's say it was for me that I might be volunteering to be part of a medical experiment or, or accept the benefits and detriments if I choose to have it as a medical treatment. We're actually dealing with things that could impact future generations that are not yet even born. And I think that creates a, a, a distinction with a real difference. But as you said, Wesley, these kinds of bioethically questionable therapies and, and uh, experiments are always going to be sold to the public on the grounds that, oh, we can cure Uncle Charlie's Alzheimer's or curing some disease, which of course is a very good thing to do. We want to cure diseases, but I guess what you're saying is we want to make sure that the treatments we're using and the therapies we're using to cure diseases don't have these collateral risks that could pose almost existential dangers to the human race and raise all these bioethical questions. We should pursue treatments that seem to have lower risks and lower collateral damage. Yeah. And there's one other factor that these changes can be used for enhancement, which has nothing to do with treating a medical condition or a pathology. In fact, I would submit to you that the greater chance in terms of these technologies would be for things such as enhancement, improving supposedly intelligence and so forth. It's a very eugenics-friendly kind of technology, and that's another reason why it should not be done in terms of germline genetic engineering, and I don't think children should ever be subjected to enhancing kinds of things as opposed to, you know, once they're in a somatic condition, perhaps even at the fetal stage where it would not be germline, you might want to do something to correct a genetic disease. But we should never engage in enhancing because then you're saying that some people have greater value than other people, that some attributes are, are more important than other attributes. And the interesting thing is when you hear people like the transhumanists who want to use these kinds of technologies to become immortal, they always talk about, well, we're going to enhance our intelligence. And it's very funny, Casey, I never hear them talk about enhancing our capacity to love. And you know who has the, the people I found with the greatest capacity to love are, are people with Down syndrome. And so, you know, we got to be really careful 
when we start saying this attribute is more important and we have to be very careful when we start saying, well, we want to tinker with this to make a person smarter or a person better looking or change the color of their eyes or give them better eyesight, things that are not necessary for human health. What a great point, Wesley. And what a point about what it means to be human. Being human is, is about what's in your soul. And obviously a person with Down syndrome has as much of that as any other human being. I think that that's a really important point you've made. And the, the um, you know, people with Down syndrome have a developmental disability, but in, in some regards, because they are people with Down that I've known are so incredibly accepting and forgiving and, and loving that, you know, they have a lot to teach us. And mm. I think our society is actually much poorer for the fact that due to eugenic abortion, there are far fewer people with Down syndrome among us than when I was a young man. Mm, wow. So this brings up the issue of human exceptionalism, which you talk about in your chapter. What is human exceptionalism and why is it so important to analyzing the morality of biotechnology? I think human exceptionalism should be the basis for most scientific endeavors dealing with human beings, medicine and things of this sort. Uh, human exceptionalism has two aspects to it. The first is our unique value, our unique value in the known universe, and it's equal, our unique equal value. All human beings have equal moral worth. The second is our obligations and responsibilities. That's why I don't just call it sanctity of life, because it's more than that. Uh, we are the only known moral species in the universe, and we are the only ones that have an understanding of ought or right versus wrong. And, and that gives us responsibilities and obligations. And, and we have obligations to each other. We have obligations to uh, our progeny. Uh, you know, when our founding fathers were creating this country, they talked about their progeny all the time. That's us. And, and we have an obligation in how we are dealing with the science in terms of the people who will come after we're gone and what kind of a world will they have. We have an obligation to treat animals humanely, and, and some of these technologies would require really awful animal experimentation. Just to give you an example, in the transhuman movement, there's a desire for biological men, trans women, to have a right for transplant of a uterus so that they can give birth and they can experience what a biological woman can experience. Well, how are you going to do that unless you go through animal experiments? And in fact, in China, there recently was an animal experiment in which they took rats and they took a male rat and female rat. They did it more than once, but I'm using the singular and they, they attached them surgically. They took the uterus and put it in the male rat. Then they used an IVF embryo to have the male rat be pregnant. And they had the female rats blood involved so that the, uh, embryo would develop naturally. And actually some pups were born from a quote male, close quote, rat. And I, I objected to that very strenuously, not only in terms of should we do that? And if we did that in a human life, you know, that, that's no benefit for the baby. That's just to make the uh, person who wants the uh, uterus to feel better about themselves. But this was a, an egregious case of animal abuse. To do that to rats, for that kind of a purpose to me was wrong and violated our duties under human exceptionalism. And we have scientists now using animals for these kinds of genetic experiments. And, and I'm not against that, but there has to be certain lines that we do not cross in that regard. Otherwise you end up like the Island of Dr. Moreau, right? 
And so these are these are important conversations that I don't necessarily have the answer to, but the scientists are not even pausing long enough for us to actually grapple with what is technologically possible now, because these technologies have moved so fast, and all they will agree to are, are voluntary guidelines. Well, they're worth the paper they're written on. Voluntary guidelines are inadequate. And because of uh, what we've seen in terms of just those two babies that were born that we discussed have proved to be inadequate. And so really there needs to be an international moratorium on some of this work so that we can create binding regulatory processes and boundaries that we do not cross. But right now the scientists aren't allowing us to do that. And they keep saying, well, we'll, we won't cross these lines. Well, I don't trust them. Sorry. Well, that's, Very well put, Wesley. You say at the end of your chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith that we need humility and control. And you suggest that it's it's time for the world to focus and control the application of CRISPR and other biotechnologies before the science controls us. So do we need strict controls on how CRISPR can be used? And how are we going to enforce these, I guess, is another question. Well, I do think we need strict controls with regard to germline human engineering. I think that 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 should be a verboten, uh, forbidden territory at this point, at least, until we have a better understanding of what is done. And even then, if you're going to permit it, it it would have to be the the most important kind of work to prevent some kind of a dread disease or something. And even then, I'm not sure we should do it. The way you would do that is you would have international treaties. We have international treaties, for example, against nuclear nonproliferation. And the only nations that aren't bound by that are rogue nations. And and then there are international sanctions and punishments that can be imposed that can deter uh, wrongdoing. And and I think what we've seen in, in that regard is that when we weaken those deterrents, then you start to see more attempts to, to go beyond what should be done. But nobody's talking about doing that. Uh, I I, uh, pounded on the Trump administration for four years on the pages of National Review to at least bring up the issue. And he never mentioned the subject. I called him derelict. I mean, I was beside myself because this we we get so caught up in in policies and issues and controversies that have really no long term consequence when you think about it. But this stuff could be existential. And yet we just sit there like deers with it in the headlights and stare and, and don't do a damn thing about it. Excuse me. And I do think that's that's a huge mistake because we do need to have direction. We need to have control and we need to have a conversation about what we want, what we don't want, what is right, what is too dangerous and what areas do we want to engage in these technologies for the betterment of humankind, because you don't want to have a blanket ban either, because there's so much good that can come from it. But we can't have that conversation unless we put a pause and start to talk and grapple with it in a serious manner. And I have seen no indication that the Biden administration is going to be any more forthcoming in that regard than the than the Trump administration was. You know, the last administration that tried to grapple with these issues, which was George W. Bush and his embryonic stem cell policies, And you saw the hell he caught for very modest federal funding restrictions. And I think everyone's scared because the media will scream, oh, you don't want people to get out of their wheelchairs and this kind of thing. Well, our politicians need to be statesmen and they need to step up to the plate and grapple with this because that's what they're there for. 
Yeah, you talk in your chapter about how ad hominem attacks are often used against those who go against sort of the status quo or the politically correct view on regulating these technologies. But I think that you use the word existential there, and that really is the right way to put this, Wesley. I mean, obviously, it's so politically acceptable to worry about environmental existential threats to humanity, whether that's global warming or trash in the ocean or clean air, clean water. And maybe we should be worried about these things. Maybe these are potentially existential threats. These are more impactful potentially than those are. Yes, exactly. Why is this existential threat of editing the human germline and potentially radically messing up the genetics of the entire human species, why is that not considered an existential threat worth taking seriously? Because everybody's afraid of being called, quote, anti-science. You know, you guys in the intelligent design know about that. <laughs> and we're not talking about being anti-science. Science is a method. And science without ethics can be monstrous. So you need both. You need good science, which is a method of, of determining facts of the natural world and applying them. And you need ethics so that you keep science from becoming monstrous and rogue. So it, this is an important ethical debate as much as it is a science debate. Could not agree with you more. Wesley J. Smith, thank you so much for so eloquently explaining the need for regulation and control on some of these very controversial CRISPR treatments and other methods of genetically engineering the human germline. Well, thanks for having me, and I appreciated the ability to uh, contribute to the book. Yes, well, we certainly appreciated your contribution to the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, exploring the ultimate questions about life and the cosmos. It's available on Amazon. You can read more from Wesley J. Smith in the book, and you can also hear a lot more from Wesley on his podcast at the website humanize.today. I can say I've listened to a couple podcasts you put out, Wesley, and it's a great way to stay up to date on key issues in bioethics and some of these science technology policy issues. Well, thank you very much, Casey, and it was great being with you. Well, again, check out Wesley's podcast, Humanize.today, and check out his chapter in the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. I'm Casey Luskin with ID The Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.